everyone is negotiating their paths through life. Whether it is something of significance within business, whether it's a personal relationship, you have these euphemisms of collaboration and partnership and sales, and yet they all come down to this concept of negotiating and understanding what others want and a compromise for everybody to get what they want. Today's guest, Chris Voss, the Voss, is after three decades of being a hostage and terrorist negotiator for the FBI, has started to turn all of the lessons he's learned towards everyday life and as well as all of the business interactions and situations we find ourselves in within our careers, whether it is getting that big deal done or whether it is your salary or whether it is negotiating for that extra resource for your team. The advice is just so practical, so simple, but much of it is is actually counterintuitive. So I'm really excited about today's episode with Chris. Uh, he's also just such a great, such a great storyteller and simplifier of everything that we've just touched on. So if you did conversations like the one you're going to hear today, the ones you've heard previously on Below the Line, sm- no, not smash lightly, ever so lightly graze that subscribe button. Try to even go so the lightest press of anything you've ever pressed on your phone or your computer. That subscribe button, your podcast player on YouTube. Hit like, drop some knowledge in the comments. Do all the things, but do them lightly and gently. But make sure you do them. And now, without further ado, let's get into it with Chris Voss. This is Below the Line. Chris, the Voss, uh, got you on the podcast, and this has been a long time coming. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while uh, for a whole host of reasons, but uh, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm happy to be on with you. Well, I think um, I I, I want to start with. By the way, I already know that I'm I'm losing in this negotiation because who, he who talks first is loses. Um, but the uh, the I'm excited to uh, I'm too excited to chat with you. So I'm not in a good mental state for a great negotiation. Um, but I want to add. Nothing wrong with being excited. Okay, okay. Well, I wanted to ask you, what is your mental state? Just right off the bat, what's your mindset as you enter a conversation where you know there might be a negotiation uh, involved? Well, the most effective mindset is either gratitude or curiosity, uh, but a positive mindset of some form because, you know, to quote Sean Acker, a Harvard psychologist, did a great TED talk, I think called The Happiness Advantages. Sean says you're 31% smarter in a positive frame of mind. You know, simultaneously, I study flow a lot, Stephen Kotler and his information. And flow is your maximum performance mindset. And it's highly positive. So, you know, positive state of mind one way or another is, is always going to benefit you. What is and and actually, that's the first question I had for you was just what is the mindset you bring into? And I, and I know you you talked a lot about playfulness as well 
Yeah, playfulness so, is in so un unexpected. Before we get into your background, I did want to just touch on that. Why is playfulness helpful for the work that that you've done in your past? Well, it's, you know, there's two issues. Is it helpful for the work that I'm doing now? Uh, you know, when I was a, a kidnapping negotiator, um, when we would uh, brainstorm as a team, you know, you want to go fast, go alone. You want to go far, go as a team. You know, the, the model in the Black Swan group now is, you know, we operate as a team. We negotiate as a team. When I was leading kidnapping negotiations, I always had at least one wingman. And I was always bouncing stuff off of my team. Now, if we're playful together, when we're not on the phone, um, we're going to have more energy. We're going we're gonna to be able to think faster. We're going to see patterns quicker. Um, we're more likely to tease out a good idea in our group think if, if we're joking around. I mean, that was my whole history in the FBI was I, I worked with guys that like to work really hard and we had a lot of laughs. And between those two things, I mean, you know, we got more in total done and worked much bigger cases than anybody else did. And we're doing the same thing in a Black Swan group now. I mean, we're helping people through some phenomenal negotiations. Do you mind giving listeners a little bit of background of, uh, obviously, the top of the episode, there's there's the intro, but do you mind giving your version of the background of, of your work and and who you and the skills you've acquired through that work? Yeah, well, I'm, you know, I'm a retired FBI agent. I was the FBI's lead international kidnapping negotiator. You know, I worked terrorism and kidnapping pretty much my entire career. You know, worked work this stuff in New York, um, worked with some phenomenal people. We made great cases. And um, biggest chunk of my career was in New York City. Another large chunk of it was doing nothing other than hostage and kidnapping negotiations the last seven years of my bureau time was dedicated to that stuff. And, uh, and then when it was time to go, I got on and I wrote a book, you know, never split the difference. And now we're applying emotional intelligence of hostage negotiators into the black swan method. And, uh, people in the business world are making great deals with the stuff we coach them on. I love the book. Never split the difference. Um, Negotiating like your life depends on. I want to talk about that subtitle. Also, the masterclass uh, that I haven't taken, but I I told a friend that we we're chatting today, and he just finished the masterclass, and he basically said, "Can I come over and listen to the conversation?" He didn't even want to wait for the podcast to to go live, so he's literally listening to it. That's the first yeah, time that's ever that's ever happened. That's cool. And and he was blown away. I mean, he was like kind of in a stupor. Um, my, my buddy, Joseph, he's kind of in a stupor uh, yesterday, last night when I told him we were chatting today, I was like, no way. I love that guy. And he starts going through the master class, And then, uh, this morning was like, can I listen to the conversation? So there's no shortage of, um, of admiration for the, the work you've done after leaving Thank the FBI you. and, and as well as there's no shortage of practicality to it. And yeah. And I, and so I wanted to kick off the, so I wanted to chat about just the mindset coming in because I, I remember when I, when I learned that playfulness aspect, positivity, I, I remember feeling that was just not intuitive, um, to a hostage negotiation, to a, even negotiation around something of paramount importance for, a, uh, some business outcome. You just wouldn't think of, of playfulness. 
And so I wanted to start there. We'll probably come back there. But I also wanted to jump in. Um, do you mind, for, for my, my own curiosity, how does a hostage negotiation, how, do, how would one of them specifically start? Do you, you're at your desk and you get a, converse, you get a phone call at 2.30, something gnarly's happening, and then, and then like walk me through the whole process. Well, I'll give you two different examples because there's two types of cases that I worked in. As it turns out, most hostage negotiators don't do both. You know, domestic U.S. contained known location, you know, to use sort of self-defining terms, like a bank robbery with hostages. It happened in Brooklyn at Chase Manhattan Bank. And I'm sitting at my desk in my office in New York City, uh, part of the Joint Terrorist Task Force and also running a hostage team then. And a buddy of mine comes up and says, there's a bank alarm in Brooklyn, reported hostages being held, oh, let's go. And from the moment we got that, a bank alarm went out at 8.30. I probably heard about it from him shortly thereafter. From the moment of the bank alarm to the moment when a negotiation operation center, a negotiation team was set up and ready to make the first call inside was two hours. Two hours later, we're dialing into the bank with what little intel we had, which, as it turned out, was almost all false. What was, yeah, what's happening in those two hours? No, spare no detail, because this is, this is fascinating to me, and it's a world I'll never get insight into unless we're talking. What happens in those two hours? Are they making demands and chatting with the police chief, but they're saying, hey, wait till we get... Chris on the phone, and then and then what information are you getting that ends up being super false? Well, most of the time, you would expect them to not be communicating with anybody. I mean, somebody, you know, as a police department is putting up both an inner perimeter, inner perimeter and an outer per perimeter. You know, the inner perimeter, you know, nobody goes inside that as close to the bank. SWAT has lined it. You know, they've got to control everything about it between the inner and the outer perimeter sort of like the law enforcement safe zone only law enforcement's getting inside there and we're moving around setting up command posts generally speaking there's no communication the SWAT guys are not trained in verbal de-escalation and ideally they don't say a word um, because you know what looks easy is usually pretty hard are they trained in, in how not to escalate it, like accidentally escalate it? Or are you guys kind of at odds of like, I hope they don't make this situation a whole lot worse? Ideally, uh, the way you don't accidentally escalate is you don't say nothing. You know, mm -hmm. your silence is, <laughs> is it, mm -hmm. you know, and they're going to move around. They're going to, they're going to, um, they're going to move being conscious of cover and concealment. So the visual display ideally is not threatening. Now, the bad guys are going to expect the good guys to show up and surround a place. So they kind of expect that. And there's a, there's a fair amount of tolerance. You know, they may, they may, they may scream out, you know, nobody come in or somebody's going to die, which is actually um, a highly encouraging thing to say uh, because it's what we refer, refer to as a defensive threat. You know, every, every, every objection in a negotiation is really a counteroffer in disguise. A hostage negotiation or business negotiation. 
bad guys might say, nobody comes in or somebody's going to die. Your response to that would be, okay, so as long as we don't come in, everybody's going to stay safe. You know, uh, objection is a counteroffer in disguise, even in a hostage negotiation. So ideally the SWAT guys just don't say anything. You know, we set up the perimeter, we gather one until we have hostage negotiators are prepared to call in. It's a cold call. Hostage negotiator is the ultimate cold calling salesman selling a jail sentence. And typically we get a 93% buy rate, um, which is harder than it sounds because you say, well, of course, because otherwise they're going to die. Well, it's not that easy. Leverage is in the eye of the beholder and over too much use of leverage kills deals in business and in hostage negotiation. So, you know, you know, you don't want to be blunt with your use of leverage. Now, in this particular case, I didn't realize it at the time, but the guy who was the organizer of the bank robbers bore all the characteristics of a great CEO negotiator, great influential negotiator, really smart negotiator comes to the table is going to pretend like they got no power because the most influential negotiator does not want to get cornered at the table. He doesn't want to escalate. He really just wants to gather, he or she just wants to gather information and figure out what kind of options there are and pretend like they're powerless. I mean, a super smart even if the CEO comes to the table, the CEO is going to say, you know, I got a board of directors. I got investors. You know, there's all these people I'm accountable to. I, you know, I really can't make commitments. Otherwise I'm going to get fired. Do you, if, in, do you realize those tells super early where you're like, where you can say, Oh shit. Okay. This person's going to be good. We had no idea at the time. Okay. This is all stuff that I learned after the fact. So what was the setup from this guy at the time? He called the precinct on his own and said that there's a number of us inside here. We're all from different countries and we want to surrender. So we show up at the negotiation operations center and we look at our intel without questioning where it came from. We just look at it and assume it's accurate since it's coming from our side. And I write down on what we call a situation board, multiple hostage takers from different countries they want to surrender. Not the case. There are only two guys on the inside. Now, when we finally get this, the first guy on the phone, He's doing this whole smart CEO thing, which we do not recognize. He's saying like, look, there's a bunch of guys in here with me. And he says, I got to tell you, I'm scared of these guys myself. I mean, these guys are dangerous. I don't know what they're going to do. You know, I, I'm even afraid if they find out I'm talking to you. And he would abruptly put us on hold or say, I'm going to put you on speaker so everybody can hear you. All, all in an effort to keep us from realizing that he was the decision maker, the big influencer on the inside. Now his surrender plan, which, you know, you got to figure command is only going to listen to half of it. 
Now, the really odd thing that had happened was earlier that same year, a hijacked Lufthansa airplane landed at JFK in New York. First hijacking to land in the United States in like 17 years. And what year was this? 93. 93 was one of the craziest years for terrorism and hostage taking. Like it was the most insane roller coaster ride. More stuff happened in 1993. First World Trade Center bombing, Waco, three straight federal prison sieges, major terrorist arrests in New York. And uh, September was this hostage taking. And I'm up to my eyeballs in half of these because they've taken place mostly in New York City or their hostage sieges. And, and I'm working on them one way or the other. It was a crazy year. Nuts. But anyway, earlier that year, this hijacking had come down and a hijacker. And this is, you know, a bad guys. You know, all human beings do stupid stuff, right? The hijacker wanted to ride to New York. So he hijacked a plane. You're going to go to jail when a plane lands. But he literally surrendered the moment the plane landed. Like this dude came skipping down the jetway on the airplane. First chance he got and gave him up to authorities. So oddly enough, there was precedent in New York for people surrendering right away. Now, our bank robbers, that is not their plan. And what was what was for that hijacker? Were they just... They wanted to be in prison in the U.S. Uh, somehow, psychologically or mentally ill. Uh, they just thought that was better than their other situation. Yeah, yeah, uh, exactly the case. Without diving deep, too deeply yeah. into okay. it, oddly enough, um, being in jail in the United States is better than being on the streets in many countries in the world. You know, there there's some countries of the world where not only do you have a legitimate fear of getting killed today, you don't also don't know where your next meal is going to come from at all. You know, at, at least in prison, you're getting three squares a day. You might get killed in prison too, but at least you're going to get fed. It's bizarre, right? Right. We, we, we take for a grant, we take for granted the advantages of living in, in a first world country or fully developed nation, however you want to refer to it. Right. Right. And anyway, you know, so our bad guys, when we get on the phone with them, what they have told us since they want to surrender is, we want you to put a van outside. We're going to come out and get in a van. And we are going to drive ourselves to the local precinct because we don't feel safe surrendering here. Now, that's not a surrender plan. That's an escape plan. That's access to a vehicle in a parting of the Red Sea so they could drive away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but command does not listen to any of this. Command is, is not command? paying close command attention to you, negotiations. Command is you and your team, or who, who is command? Ah, command. All right, so it's like having a board of directors okay. or senior management that is not involved with the front line of what's going on. You know, the, the, the hostage negotiation team is a combined team of the NYPD and the FBI's hostage negotiators. Uh, because we, we knew each other, we trained together, we used the same vernacular. SWAT team on the inner perimeter is all NYPD. SWAT teams do not mix and match. Even if they've trained together, they have different vernacular, different terms. They color code the building 
The white side is usually the front of the building. They number the windows and doors left to right so they can call it out in a, you know, sort of a shorthand verbal code. Nobody knows what they're talking about. White A1 might be the window on a first floor of the front on the east side. So then uh, NYPD is principally the commanders since it's their SWAT team. FBI commanders are showing up and they're proceeding basically on a gentleman's agreement as to who's going to make the final decision and whoever's got the SWAT team that's surrounding the building. If somebody dies, they're going to be accountable for that decision in a grand jury. So at the end of the day, NYPD's got command of uh, any application of deadly force. So, and the negotiators are rocking and rolling. We're trying to keep command informed, which is hard to do unless you got a steady stream of verbal and written, written okay. documents mm-hmm. and a steady stream coming out um, to keep command informed, which was really the FBI model that, you know, by the time I had was part of the crisis negotiation unit, we created a steady stream of written documents, assessment documents. This is what we think. This is what we think we should do. Real concise briefings. But that wasn't the case, you know, back then in those days with the PD. So command's half listening. And all they heard was the guy wants to surrender. So pretty soon they're getting impatient. They want to know why hasn't they come out if these guys want to surrender. And we're like, well, they don't want to surrender. They want to escape. And uh, so the first negotiator negotiated kind of to a standstill. And the PD lieutenant who's running the negotiations negotiation says, you know, Chris, we're going to put you on a phone next. And again, this is, you know, this is a decent business principle. First of all, the other side never changes negotiators unless they want to take a harder stance. Never. Anytime you're faced with a change in negotiators on the other side, it ain't so you, the other side could be nicer. It's so they can, it's always to take a harder stance in business or in a hostage take. So if, if the phone's getting handed off metaphorically or literally to someone else, expect more resistance. A firmer approach mm-hmm. of some sort. Now the person may sound nicer. And it was my job to sound very nice, but to be much firmer on a number of issues. And you can do that on your side if negotiations have been at an impasse for a while. You can inject what might be perceived as negative energy if you do it nicely. Because you're, you're stalemated and the situation needs some energy. It's you know, the metaphor of taking a U-turn and turning it into an S-curve. By the time you're done ex- executing the maneuver, you're farther along than you were previously. You just have to be prepared to make a bit of a U-turn before you come back out of the curve. So that's what we did. And uh, I'm applying, you know, the emotional intelligence that I've you learned from the suicide hotline which is really what the black swan method is built on. You know, we just started, uh, applied to people in crisis and then 
the neuroscience of just the last five years have told us it applies to all human decision making. When, when you say that, what's going through your mind of, of those things that apply to all human decision making? Well, I mean, um, first of all, negotiation is a perishable skill. So I have been getting all my small stakes practice in. You know, I, I was volunteering on a suicide hotline at the time. I'm practicing my tone of voice with all in all my interactions with the people when I'm buying coffee. You know, I'm getting something to eat with a waiter or waitress in a restaurant. You know, I'm constantly using it because it's keeping me sharp and I'm learning every step of the way. You know, this tone of voice is good. The smile at this moment, upward inflect at this moment or downward inflect at this other moment. You know, you, you develop your feeling. You got to stay fresh. It's Jim Camp wrote a book in 2002 called uh, Start With No. And he was a, a football coach and he used to call negotiation as a human performance event. And it is, which also means, you, you know, you got to keep in practice. You need small stakes practice. And no matter how good or bad you are, you could have like no skill at all. You start practicing, you can develop your skill pretty quickly. Yeah. So don't take those, those small interactions for granted. Right. You know, the, the solid gold learning opportunities. So, you know, I'm, I, I got my process down. I'm satisfied with my preparation and my process. And I'm prepared to do, I got an opening line and I'm prepared to engage, you know, in a dynamic interaction from that point forward, as long as I'm listening and actually listening. What? Yeah. Tell me your mindset going in and your opening line. Well, um, typically my opening line is going to be something to the effect of, I'm here to talk to you about coming out. Now, you should never think more than three steps ahead. Because after three steps, the situation is going to change enough that you know, all your preparation is going to go out the window. It's like playing chess where all the chess pieces are connected by springs. And every time you move a piece all the other pieces move slightly. By the time you move three pieces, the board's completely reset. So my opening, I'm here to talk to you about coming out. They're going to say, I'm not coming out. And then I'm going to say, I know you're not ready to come out now. I just want you to know that when you are, you're going to be safe. Ah, oh, this is so good. Okay, so... Walk me through the rationale behind each word that I know you're meticulously choosing and that intonation that you're choosing. And also give me an example of what would be a complete idiot that thinks they're being smart on that phone, what they would say to, to the uh, terrorist at that time or the bank robber at that time. Well, um, so my tonation is designed to give reassurance. You know, there's, and that's what I said, even in the last five to 10 years, the neuroscience backs this up. I can affect your emotion by my tone of voice. It starts a neurochemical change in your brain that's involuntary. You cannot not hear me and not allow the process to start. Now, you can fight it, but you can't stop me from initiating a chemical change in your brain based on my tone of voice. Are you doing it right now? 
to some degree and I'm doing some pacing, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm staying in the moment because I'm, you know, your inner voice betrays your outer voice. I want my inner voice to be saying like, look, I know what I'm talking about, but I don't want to sound arrogant. And I don't want you to feel like I'm pushing you because the minute you feel pushed, it's a violation of your autonomy. It's another principle of, of from Camp's book, why I knew that hostage negotiation applied to business. Because we knew about autonomy being the critical issue as to whether or not people are going to get themselves killed. It's why in business negotiations, business people get together and they say, you know, I'm going to blow this deal up. You know, I'm fed up with these guys and I'm just going to blow this up. It's because their autonomy was threatened. They felt a use of leverage against them and they'd rather die than give in to leverage. They'd rather blow up the deal than give in to leverage. It's the same thing. It's just human nature dynamics, whether somebody's trapped in a bank or whether they're across the table in a business deal. And, you know, you know I had, I had one uh, very analytical CEO once say, nine out of 10 negotiations fail. The minute he felt the other side was trying to use leverage on him, he just, he just, he just say, no, thanks. And back out of the deal because he saw that use of leverage is an indicator of all future behavior. And someone who's always going to beat me with leverage is someone I do not want to do business with. And so he, he pulled the plug on negotiations right and left because he knew it was bad. It was a bad long-term relationship and he wanted smooth long-term relationships that were not combative. Autonomy, same thing in a hostage negotiation. So that's, you know, my voice is designed to reassure you and not threaten you simultaneously. So you, your opening line is, I'm here to talk to you about you coming out. Yeah. And they're going to say, I'm not ready to come out. And I'm going to say, well, I, you know, when you do, and this gives me a chance to paint a verbal picture. Everybody makes their decisions based on their vision of the future. Vision drives decision. Mm, pretty tough if a guy person. says, look, get me a car or I'm going to kill somebody. What's the purpose of a car? Purpose of a car is to escape. Why do you want to escape? Because you want to live. Guy's got a vision in his head that he wants to be alive. I can find a point in the future that we agree on. And then we can work our way back from there. So if he demands a car, my response is not going to be, I can't get your car because I can't. But instead of addressing that, I'm going to say, sounds like you want to live. Sounds like you want to survive all this. We now got an agreement on a point in the future. I want him to live too. Now what happens from there, we got to work those implementation details out. This episode is brought to you by a little sipper called Magic Mind. Ever wake up in the morning wondering, what am I doing with my life? Well, what you probably aren't doing is sipping on them Magic Minds. Magic Mind is a two-ounce shot, matcha, nootropics, adaptogens, functional mushrooms, everything in a morning ritual drink that you've ever wanted. You take it alongside your morning coffee or tea, and you get seven hours of creative, productive flow. It has 12 magical ingredients that all combine for everything you'd want in a shot. 
energy, cognition, de-stressing, immunity support, everything in this two ounce beautiful shot that tastes delicioso. So go check it out, magicmind.co, enter promo code BTL, that's BTL for below the line for 20% off, magicmind.co. Go check it out and get them sippers. So if I were to deconstruct this, it's you have the intonation, uh, the voice intonation of they have autonomy. Um, right. And, and you're really preserving that. Um, yeah, you, you, at all costs. At all, at Psychologically, all, right. the feeling of autonomy. Right. You're also um, adding some firmness to it of this is what I'm here to do. Um, it sounds like you're, you know, you're at least giving some shape, but then in their requests, and this is, you can map this to so many areas of life. It sounds like you not only are able to zoom out, um, in parallel and see what they want outside of the, the tactics of, of whatever's happening conversationally, but then also it sounds like you genuinely want what they want in that zoom you 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 said just matter of fact i also want them to live yeah Yeah. am i reading that right or am i missing any any important aspects of of what's happening no you you, you're hitting on all of it and and you know this is one of the things that like i did so much as a hostage negotiator until i ran across certain brilliant people in the business world you know i didn't understand all the parallels and, you know, so this moment in the future, it really was brought home with me really just a few years ago when I met a guy named Tom Girardi. Now, Tom Girardi, unfortunately, has become infamous in the last couple of years, having uh, been married to one of the real housewives of Beverly Hills. And there's just all this scandal going on. I don't know anything about that. When I knew Tom Girardi in L.A., he was a complete gentleman, a brilliant dude and had great relationships. I don't know what's happened since. All I know is my exposure to the guy who was a gentleman. Every interaction I heard him interact with people over, if somebody was in a conflict with him and they'd say, Tom, how do you see this working out? And Tom would say, you know, 10 years from now, I want to look back on us and be proud of the relationship that we've had over the last 10 years. And that puts the current conflict in a completely different light. You know, it signals that he wants to collaborate with you. It's really gentle. Like when, when I first met Tom Girardi, he was described to me as one of the top trial attorneys in the world. And in my time in New York, trial attorneys were attack dogs. I mean, you know, a trial attorney is a guy going to go, guy or gal is going to go through the throat. I mean, they're going to thump you, but good verbally. I meet this guy, Girardi, in L.A., and, you know, I'm like, this dude could be Santa Claus at Macy's. He's so nice. I mean, just non-threatening and smiling and gentle, which is a great way to establish rapport, sell the other side on a long-term relationship, and a great position to be relentless from. Uh, tell me more of why that sounds counterintuitive of Santa Claus is a good, is a great place to be relentless from. Yeah. Cause Tom could say like, look, you know, what you want 
is not going to be good for us long term. And I'm just, I can't settle for that because what you want is just not going to work for us long term. I mean, it's a super gentle way to tell somebody that you're completely rejecting their offer. Mm. And, you know, that's one of the keys to negotiation because there are a lot of negotiators out there that are trained to make you say no at least twice before they settle. I've What do you mean? Seen people say over and over again, do not, you know, tough, hard bargaining contracts negotiators who I have a lot of exposure to who are curious about this emotional intelligence approach say to me, we have a blanket rule that we never uh, settle on a price until the other side has rejected us at least twice. Because so many people's rejections are fake and they know it's a fake rejection. So they're going to push through the first one. So you've got to reject them passionately. And a lot of people start, you know, turning deals down before they've gotten to their bottom line because they're trying to preserve a cushion for themselves. Like uh, um, um, you can negotiate anything by Herb Cohen written back in about 1980. I read that book. Anybody that's studied negotiations in depth has read that book. And one of my takeaways from Herb's book was keep pushing the other side until they get genuinely angry. And if they're not genuinely angry, you have not sufficiently backed them into the corner. You know, that's getting people to say no more than once. I feel like some executives in Silicon Valley have read that. I remember uh, one of the first, or the, the head of BD at Amazon, um, that then became an executive within uh, the Valley with for a few companies that I worked with. He was an, an advisor wanting more shares than the company I was building. And he not, not only told me as he was advising in a few deals that we were working on, and he was a super lovable, super lovable guy. So, I mean, he he's probably reading these these books. And, and, or, and or it's anecdotal wisdom in right. the environment so super likable guy but then tells me always walk away whatever whatever you get always walk away um and you'll get a better deal so he says that like probably fourth or fifth interaction that we have as we're talking through uh some deal we're working on and then six months later he himself calls flustered kind of makes a mountain out of a molehill of something little and says, Hey, I don't think we, I don't think this is the right partnership for, for, for me. I don't think this is working out. And, uh, is very pissed and gets other executives on a thread of how he's, he's pissed. Re I think this is more like, uh, maybe Michael Jordan in a wizard's Jersey because it didn't really <laughs> make a whole lot of sense of why he's pissed. And, but there's this fear of, okay, he's going to break away from this agreement. He's super helpful. A lot of street cred for him being involved with the company and, uh, and as a board observer. Um, but ultimately, what he wanted was more equity in the company. And so that comes out that for him to come back to the table, he wanted more equity. Um, and, and so I actually walked away from that because I was like, I don't think this is that valuable. So then he settled back for that previous number. But it was, it was this theatrics of walking away to see what we would do, see what I would do as the CEO, um, built off of what he had told me months prior of always walk away. And maybe that's tying in to what you're talking about of, of just kind of these, I, it felt a little rote instead of 
brilliant and methodical. Um, right. But it it has certainly earned him the the uh, reputation of being one of the best deal makers in Silicon Valley. You can get a long way with that. And if you've mastered that, comparatively speaking, compared to your peers, you can look really good. So, you know, the real dilemma, you know, it's a Jim Collins line, good is the enemy of great. Or, you know, uh, uh, Robbins takes it a step further. You know, great, uh, good is the enemy of great. Great is the enemy of outstanding. Mm. Like, there's a better way than that. You know, the black swan method is that way. And the data in your environment, if you haven't seen it before, you got no reason to change. Like understanding how truly good you could be is really hard if nobody in your world is demonstrating that to you. Mm. You know, Camp used to, used to say, how do you describe a helicopter to somebody who's only flown fixed wing aircraft? Or how do you describe a supersonic jet to somebody who's only fl flown propeller driven planes? I mean, if they've never seen it, they're just not going to buy it. And that's one of the very difficult transitions in these phases of negotiation, you know, because you've got reason from your data and the performance of your peers to feel like you're better than everybody, anybody else you've ever seen. And, and that's why sometimes it's very difficult for us to get across to people. We'll come, we'll come into an organization where their top salesperson is toxic mm. and, you know, very manipulative, threatening, demanding type of person, you know, using a yes momentum, using all kinds of all the bad behaviors. And that person, he or she is the top salesperson they got. And we know from the people that we've taught our the close rate that from what we teach would exceed this guy's close rate, guy or gal. But this guy or gal is looking around at their peers and going like, I'm, I'm, I'm the, I'm the top player in the game. Right. You know, I'm you can't, that propeller you can't plane. tell me I'm I flying. don't make deals. Right. Yeah. Right. And that, that change is scary. I mean, it only, it takes a certain type of person to do it. Like Tiger Woods, he's killing everybody when he gets out onto the tour. And in the midst of destroying his competition, he decides he's got to improve his swing. Mm-hmm. Now, he's got no reason to approve his swing because he's killing everybody. But being driven for excellence, he knows he can still get better. And that takes a special kind of person. Mm. Okay, so we're back in, and you make that opening line. And and so, yeah, with with this smart, savvy negotiator on the other side, and it, it sounds like you don't know that he's smart, sad. The bank robber isn't, you don't know how savvy he is yet. No, we got no idea how, sh how sharp this guy is or how many moves he has in him, which again is a great thing of an emotional intelligent appro intelligence approach and not scripting it out. You're kind of prepared to go along for whatever dance the other side wants to go through. And, you know, again, it's, it's what I love about what I've learned about neuroscience these days. A guy named Andrew Huberman, out of, a neuroscientist out of Stanford, I listened to all his podcasts. He says, people think in terms of duration, path, and outcome. 
Where do I want to end up? How am I going to get there? And how long is it going to take? Duration, path, and outcome. And great negotiation to be willing to discover the surprises. You know the phrase, never be so sure of what you want that you wouldn't take something better. By definition is to let go of the outcome and how you're going to get there because that's the only way to find something better. And most people are not wired to do that. Now, I've done this enough at the time at Chase Manhattan Bank that I'm, I'm cool. I'll get on the phone. I'll open up and see where this goes because I've done the process enough that I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen. I just know it's going to be good. Now, that's a scary attitude for a lot of people. You know, we got these days, we got a specific way of getting a suite upgrade in a hotel. Now, what happens if all the suites are gone? I got to be careful how I make my approach because they've got something for me that I wouldn't get unless, number one, I, you know, I use this method. Number two, I realize that they got something for me. I can't be focused on a suite upgrade because their suites could be sold out. And I also may need something else for them to, from them tomorrow. And I can't go with the approach that makes them feel bad. Like I got a friend of mine was telling me, like, I know how to get a suite upgrade. So I got a suite upgrade once. I walked in and I said, got any suites available? And they said, no. And I said, you mean to tell me if the president of the United States didn't come in here right now that you wouldn't have a suite for him? And a, and a guy says, well, of course we would. And, this guy, and so he says, well, the president ain't coming. Give me the suite. Mm. Now, that sounds really entertaining. I guarantee you he tried that 50 times and it worked once. Right. And makes for good cocktail talk. Yeah. And like if he had to turn around and come back and ask for something else the next day, they'd still be stinging from the way they got trapped the day before. What is the method you've, you've found out? You know, it's a combination of uh, lowering their expectations from the beginning, you know, dialing in with something we call, uh, we refer to as an accusations audit, which is, you know, I know I'm going to sound like just another entitled, spoiled hotel guest who wants something for nothing. Because that's what's going to go through their mind. We, I got to deactivate these negatives. And then I got I to gotta make my ask with an open-ended question, probably going to be a how. And I've got, to, I've got to hit a bank shot off the last remaining thing that's holding them back, which is what kind of trouble they're going to get in if they give me the suite. I've improved my situation in every hotel I've been in. And the only time I didn't get a suite was when they didn't have any. And I got to be careful how I make my ass because if they felt backed into a corner over it, they're going to, they're going to reject me and they're not going to, they're not going to give me a room with a special view. Or I even had a guy who had a buddy running a restaurant next door, got me 20% off my next meal at the restaurant next door. They weren't even affiliated. This guy just wanted to help me so much. It was the only thing he could think of. It's, so it sounds like you're doing what the, I love how this conversation is taking, it's almost cinematic and that there is this uh, through line of the bank robber and then all of these uh, insights being shared wrapped around it so maybe it'll cinematically beautifully uh work out to to that type of uh structure throughout the conversation but the with that with that uh that sweet ask 
it sounds like you're doing something similar to what that bank robber did in 93, where right off the bat, you are going for the most, the most powerless position you could be in, um, right off the bat of just saying, this is how I'm going to sound. I'm going to sound, do you mind re re saying it one more time of that opening line? Yeah, you know, it's interwoven in with deference and there's great strength. There's great right. influence in deference. I love deference because everybody likes it and they drop their guard. Right. You know, if if you don't feel attacked, the chances that we're going to make a deal, if I can remove myself as a threat, the chances that we're going to make a deal are much greater. So, you know, I, you know I'm going to seem like another entitled, spoiled hotel guest who wants something for nothing. Because when I make my ask, what's going to go through their brain? You're just another tiled, spoiled right. hotel guest who wants something for nothing. But this one's self-aware. Okay, this is yeah, this isn't uh, typical. And I'm, I'm the interesting thing that we've really found out about the approach of aggressively dealing with labels, aggressively but gently, from the very beginning, is they remove them as barriers or they inoculate from. What do you mean? Had anybody say, well, I didn't think you thought you were spoiled, entitled hotel guest, but now that you mention it, I do. Mm. That has never happened. Right. And everybody on my team has used this approach somewhere between five and 50 times. So our data is proactively identifying a possible negative response instead of planting it inoculates from it and that's really counterintuitive and it scares the heck out of people until they've tried it a couple of times and they're like wow i feel like i just went through a class at hogwarts and you just gave me a magic spell right yeah it's almost like you know the it's a, almost this brilliant combination of know thyself, be aware of how you're going to come across to such a, a degree that it's, it really is, is novel and, and kind of takes people back. But then also know thy enemy. You know what they're going through. You know that they deal with entitled guests all the time. They, whoever you're negotiating with, you know what they're... I became a much better fundraiser once I knew what an investor was really looking for before I just thought what an investor was looking for. And it was uh, Buffett is famous for saying he's become a better businessman by being an investor and a better investor by being a businessman. Once you know both sides of the table, then it's not that you figure out, at least I, I have never seen as you figure out how to twist the other side. It's you just know what the other one wants. You know what the other one gets annoyed by. And it sounds like you, there's this, knowledge and awareness of how you might uh, there is a uh, knowledge and awareness of how you might come across and then also like this seemingly third aspect of of almost uh, autonomy aggrandizement of i know how i'm going to come across and i'm giving you even more autonomy because i just feel free it's almost like feel free to just swat me away as this annoying little entitled hotel guest rather than Listen, this is what I need, and uh, you know, air of don't you know who I am, which right. uh, to what you're saying it removes autonomy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and you know this this whole approach. I mean, the contrasting differences 
until you've seen them. Like, you know, in, in another context, I walk into a clothing store with a girl that I'm dating a couple years ago, and, and she finds this garment that she really wants and had this imperceivable flaw in it. And she says, watch me get 15% off. And I said, oh, hold it, hold it, hold it. Because I know she's going to go in there. She's going to be demanding. She's going to, you know, this is flawed, blah, blah, this and that. She's going to come on really strong. She's got data that says she's successful. And I say, watch me get 30. Like she'd never seen that before. So she had reason based on her experience to think she was successful. And, you know, that's a hard thing about the black swan method. We got win rates higher than anybody else. And if they haven't seen it, they, you know, they, 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 they don't imagine it's possible. Good as enemy of great. Greatest enemy of outstanding. You just think, yeah. oh, I'm beating the competition. Or this works. Can't believe this works. But if you really know that other side, then you know, well, they're willing to go up to 30%. Or they do have suites available. I've never thought to I've, exactly. I've never thought to ask for an upgrade. Um, because I don't know that other side. I don't know what's possible. And so I'm just happy to have a hotel hotel room. Um and and you're you're aware of what's happening on the other side of the desk is there is there is this this potentiality that I'm not aware of. Okay, so yeah, tell me what what did you do in that scenario that would that would be different than the person that's had success with fifteen percent? Yeah, well, first of all, the only real big difference between hostage negotiation and business negotiation in, in hostage negotiation, ninety percent of the time we're using the late night FM DJ voice, hmm. the downward inflicting soothing voice. And maybe only about 10%, we might have a playful voice. Flip that for business. 80 to 90% of the time, you know, a, a playful, positive, upbeat, genuine regard. You're smarter in a positive frame of mind. The other side will be smarter also, and they'll like you. Increases your deal-making percentage so in a macy's instead of coming up and saying like do you realize this garment is flawed i'm going to start up by saying like hi i'm chris it's got to be tough in here today you got all kind of crazy people walking around here giving you a hard time and there's two of you on the floor and there's six thousand customers and you don't know which way to go i love this garment I mean, I love it. If it didn't have this flaw in it, I'd probably pay full price. How about giving me your employee discount? And they're going to say, no, I can't give you the employee discount. I'll be in trouble for that. I'd be like, hey, no. I won't tell anybody. It's just between me and you. I'm joking around about it. Every employee in every store has the ability to type in their own employee discount at any given point in time. They've also got sales that are coming up. They know when their sales are going to be. Everybody that they talk to is in a hurry and isn't in demanding. It doesn't seem to care about them or interacting with them at all. I, and I can't remember if it was this particular instance this guy says, was trying to figure out how to, how to type a discount into, into the computer. He couldn't find it. 
I saw him run over to a guy who was obviously a floor manager, and he was whispering in his ear, and I saw the manager go like, shake his head firmly, no, 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 no. And he comes walking back towards me, and another employee walks up, whispers in his ear, he gets a look of recognition on his face, and he comes over and he types a discount into the computer, and we get the 30% off. So they, they got stuff they can do and this whole playful attitude. And notice that first I started out by giving my name. This is a really counterintuitive thing to do because most people are going to say like, what's your name? Hmm. And as soon as I ask your name, you know that I'm going to start wearing it out. Right, buttering you up. Buttering you up. And the, the crazy thing is so many people do that. They wear out the other person's name. They never even bother to give them. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, there's a rapport building aspect to this. And, you know, if we're coaching the Black Swan Method, we say, look, we need you to be Beyonce. We need you to be Kanye. We need you to be known by one name only. Because everything that you add after that is harder. People have trouble remembering names anyway. You want to remember your last name how old you are, whether or not your kids played Little League, where you grew up. I mean, there's 8 billion things there that people are trying to shove down somebody's throat, trying to establish common ground. The only thing they, be Kanye, be Beyonce, be Cher, I don't know how old you are, you know, be, let them know you by one name. And that initially makes you a human being. And, and with them, it's also a persona in their own right, you know, Kanye is growing up as Kanye West and then has this, this insight of, no, I'm going to be Kanye now. Like it is, I know with Beyonce, not only she probably had a similar path, but she also has famous for, she's famous for alter ego, Sasha Fierce. Uh, And, and, and would it be helpful for someone that, that feels like this isn't like them to just create this persona, the one word version of them? Okay. Yes. I'm James Bashara. Most of the time, and I'm not trying to get deals left and right, or or uh, gonna push someone for something that I want selfishly. But you know what? I'm just gonna try on this persona. I'm James now, and for the next four minutes in this conversation with the hotel uh, attendant or the the floor manager salesperson, it's it's almost like I'm just gonna put on this persona. I'm gonna be this person. To that playful aspect, very few people are playful in their interactions, but it it sounds almost like it's uh, it's helpful to go to that place where you're this one per, this one name, you are Chris now, and it's a little bit of a different cognitive uh, space. It seems like, yeah, it is, you know, and it would work, and it, it, that'd be a great way to do it. I love that a lot, and, and you touched on something I think is really important for people to just kind of get. Because, you know, when we're teaching people the black swan method, sometimes saying, you know, that's not me. That's not who I am. Look, you started out as a blank slate. Everything about you is learned. You know, Daniel Cole wrote a great book called The Talent Code, where he lays that case out, that everything is learned. Nobody's natural anything. Mm. They got interested earlier than others people noticed, and then they... You know, they started well, they were well on their way to their 10,000 hours before anybody noticed. They said, oh, you're a natural. No, no, you're not. You've been at this for a while. So, you know, what you think is you is learned. 
which means you can add to it. You can evolve. You can you can grow in a different direction. It's not hardwired into your DNA. You got it through practice and repetition, which means you can get nearly anything you want through practice and repetition. And you can become James, mm. who's solid and playful simultaneously. All you need is a practice and repetition. Well, then I, I love that in that interaction with the, the salesperson, Macy's or, or wherever you're, you're saying, give me the employee discount. And you're saying it in a playful way where you already know the next, you know, their reactions to be like, I can't do that. I, I can get fired. And then, yeah. and then you just respond. I know it's crazy. And it yeah, just gives them uh, that, that agency, that autonomy. You, you've asked for something, but you haven't taken any autonomy away by making it playful, saying, you know, saying it in almost a laughable way, but you haven't taken away any, any autonomy from them. Exactly. And the ability to joke with people in a way that's appropriate to the context of the moment mm. is a superpower. Yeah. That deference that you're talking about. That's uh, yeah. that uh, subtle detachment that they realize, okay, this guy doesn't need something from me. I'm constantly barraged by customers or business potential partners or salespeople that need something from me. This person is almost self-sufficient. They're joking around. They don't need this this discount. Okay, now I kind of and they're playful, and they they've told me their name. They recognize something in my day, in my experience. They have that. It's almost like everything you would want in a human. And and so if you don't have all of these things, just put it in a persona that you embody for for these few minutes and, and like you said, these interactions that you could take for granted, but are the, the training grounds for when it matters even, even more, but it's this detachment from the outcome. You don't need it to be a certain way. This, uh, self-sufficiency of like, you already got, you know, you, you're just coming across that you, you're not needing something from them specifically needing for them to change. You want them to be their most autonomous self. Um, it's like everything that you would, you would want from, uh, you know, a friend, um, from a, a colleague, from a boss, but it's in a three minute interaction on the sales floor of, of, you know, whatever, uh, Nissan. Yeah. Yeah. Wherever. Yeah. Okay. Well, so, and so one of the, the things that I love about your book, and it's in the subtitle um, where you touch on it, where negotiating like your life depends on it. This is it anyone listening to this um, at an episode on sales recently. Everybody is in sales and and everybody is in negotiating. You are. Um, do you mind walking me through? Because I know that there's so much importance that can be put into the first few words, the title of a, a book, why you chose that subtitle um, to really hammer this point home of, uh, you know, never split the difference. Maybe you think that only applies to C-suite executives. And yet the subtitle is negotiating like your life depends on it. Yeah. You know, the, the title overall was pretty cool um, in that we had a completely different working title before. And this book is a collaboration between myself, Paul Ross, and my son, Brandon Voss. Brandon's an uncredited co-author of the book. He was there every step of the way. And I've been bouncing these ideas off of him. 
as far back as I can remember. And Tal said, you know, the, the title of the book is going to occur to me somewhere in the middle of writings. So we got a working title. But in learning your stuff and absorbing negotiation from you guys and reading the other negotiation books that he read, I mean, Tal is a co-writer, takes a deep dive on his own into the material, a brilliant researcher, which is one of the reasons why he's such a great writer. And he said, all right, so the title of the book is Never Split the Difference. Difference. And you guys say never do that. And you explain why, you back it up, and you tell people how not to split the difference, what to do instead. So you give them end-to-end how to deal with this. And then negotiating as if your life depended on it, you know, that's kind of what hostage negotiators were doing. Somebody's life depended on it. But in day-to-day life, every human being, your biggest problem is your biggest problem. You know, like, you know, people are committing suicide in the United States over problems that somebody in Africa would be grateful to have. You know, your biggest problem is your biggest problem. The other day, you know, I'm, I'm down because... You know, we we had a quarter that wasn't as big as last quarter or something silly like that. We're still highly profitable or, you know, never split the differences, only ranked, you know, 192 overall on Amazon. And earlier in the week, it was ranked 121. I'm still got one of the top books in the world, but I'm down because I'm only at 192. And. You know, your biggest problem is your biggest problem. One of the reminders I got the other day, somebody I follow on Instagram is a guy named Woody Belfort, uh, who's a crippled black guy, a paraplegic in a wheelchair in England. And his Instagram post is, you woke up today, you already won. And I'm thinking like, Woody Belfort had traded his problems for mine. I'm not sure that I got a reason to be all bent out of shape. So, your biggest problem is your biggest problem as a human being, whoever you are, you're probably negotiating this next deal as if your life depended on it mm-hmm. because you're human and that's what we do. Or your biggest issue, you keep putting it off because you don't feel like you can negotiate it. That's a great point. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So here's how, here's how to prep for it. You know, here's how to tackle it. Here's how to, here's how to slay that dragon. And find out it probably wasn't a dragon. That is that's so salient of of especially as you go through the book, you realize these things aren't even dragons. Be, especially if you can start to implement them in your day to day life, you see how how viable um, ne- trying to negotiate is. Especially if you feel that you've got a tool set to do it well. Okay, so what happens in this in this a hostage situation? in new york what happens next and and what were your the major takeaways that you had from the experience well you know every step of the way um the guy is determined to not cooperate so when we're trying uh we switch phones and put me on a phone i get the guy to blurt out a couple things that he did not intend to blurt out which convicted his getaway driver a, a third accomplice we didn't even know was there he said a couple things that caught me off guard i mirrored because I practice mirroring and mirroring is great for getting people to blurt stuff out that they don't plan on blurting out. They expand, they add. 
And he gives up, you know, he says, will you chase my driver away? We didn't even know we chased anybody away. He's, he's implicated somebody. He changes phones so he can think. He hands the phone off to another guy. The other guy's in crisis. I talked the guy out in the space of about 90 minutes. So now our shift, you know, I meet him out front. We do a face-to-face -face surrender. I talk to this guy. He What's your opening on everything. What is your opening line in the face-to-face? Oh, -face? Uh, well, at, at that point in time, I just like, I'm out here. I'm waiting for you to come out. I'm using a smoothing, a calming voice. He's got to walk out to the SWAT team. Mm -hmm. I've described to him, like I said before, describe what it's going to look like to come out so you don't get hurt. I say, you're going to come out. You're going to keep your hands up. You're going to move to the right. There's going to be a SWAT guy there. He's going to give you commands. They're going to put you in cuffs. As soon as he gets in cuffs, he's behind one of the vehicles that's a barrier. And he looks up and he says, where's Chris? And then I walk up and we speak. We sit down inside the bank. He starts to lay it all out for me. Mm -hmm. Our manipulative CEO, or shrewd CEO, better term, He's back on a phone. Now, our negotiator's working real hard on him coming out. He's got three hostages in order to get the upper hand back. He lets a hostage go just out of the blue because he realizes he's, he's got a couple of hostages to burn, so to speak. He can let one go. He's still got two. He gets the upper hand back. How so? Because his biggest concern is SWAT coming through the door mm. and killing him. Or a sniper shooting him through a window. So he knows his enemy. He knows they are thinking, is this just going to be a bloodbath? And he's showing, it's like, look, let me dissipate that fear. I'm going to let one go. He lets a hostage go. There's no way that SWAT's coming through the door. Mm. The good guys think they're winning. Oh, interesting. So, and, and we, we find that to be the case. It was one of those lessons learned. In the future, when somebody has multiple hostages, what are their options? What do they see as being in their favor at this point in time? You know, a hostage, you can let one go. Kidnapping, terrorists, you have multiple hostages, and kill somebody to make a point. Situation drives strategy. Got to be able to read the context and be able to come out of your game situation drive strategy so we continue uh we get we get two of the three remaining hostages out uh, this guy's doing crazy stuff we don't know about inside banks under construction he's hiding money in the walls hoping he can come back later nobody's going to know that the money's hidden in the walls he burns a pile of money in the middle of the bank you know to supposedly account for the missing cash it all got burned up we're not going to know to look in the walls I mean, he's doing nothing but trying to generate options before he finally comes out. About 12 hours into the siege, which is when someone who's been under constant pressure in this type of siege is going to mentally run out of gas, he comes out. And do you surrender. Know, do you kind of build in that time frame of let's get them to hour 12 and it's going to wear them down? You know, we don't realize it at the time. It was uh, in studying many other similar sieges over the years. We learned to be able to predict based on a profile of the siege, whether they were in their house, 
a selected location or a location they just happen to end up in, you can predict with a large degree of accuracy because it's a human being on the other side and there's some biological realities to all human beings. You can predict within two or three hours how long the siege is going to last. Oh, wow. That can map, that maps the business as well of it's, um, for better or worse, one, the, the adage of time kills all deals, but also patience is a virtue and, and finding the balance between those two things can get you exactly. to optimal, optimal Dur outcome. Duration, path, and outcome. Right. What are the trigger points based on the fact that they're a human being and their social life? Try to get a deal done in, the ha in New York City in August. Mm. Not going to happen because everybody on Wall Street is going to be in the Hamptons. <laughs> right, right. Okay, so uh, in the, the major takeaways bucket, I'm, I'm curious, out of that story... What is, and the, the last question to wrap that up for it is, what is the, the great or the outstanding negotiator do in that 12-hour um, negotiation process? And what does the good one do? But really, you would look back and say, God, you really fucked up this and this, and you were very far from outstanding. Well, you know, the phrase, never be so sure of what you want that you wouldn't take something better. I mean, when we were initially working on them to get them to release hostages, somebody else on my team sensed that the bank robber that I was talking to really wanted to get out. Get out. And that person handed me a note and said, ask him if he wants to come out. Now, because I was talking, I didn't hear it. So a second set of ears that's actually listening versus waiting for their chance to talk. The second set of ears is going to hear stuff that you as a speaker are never going to hear because every time you're constructing a response in your brain, you're not listening. You're constructing a response in your brain and you're going to miss things. So the second set of ears is always going to, if they're listening, not if they're waiting to talk. Second set of ears is always going to pick up things that you don't hear, which gives you something better than what you originally had in mind. We're trying to get hostages. A guy wants to come out. That's better. We take it. We now reverse course. We're trying to get somebody to come out. Suddenly they want to give away hostages. What are we going to say? No, you can't take a hostage. We want you to come out. No, we're going to take it. It's, it's a positive in in our favor you know take the little things that lead to the big things right and that sounds like bringing it back to the top of the conversation of you want to go fast go alone or you want to go far go together even right. the outstanding and this you see this across so many expertise it's never the lone genius it's the the collaboration with a team that creates genius outcomes and and the lone genius is a myth that having that that person next to you the other thing that seems to be reiterated is finding out what they want really listening but then also genuinely wanting what they want and genuinely wanting to figure out what they want oh they want to come out okay now we can work towards that that goal versus so many especially uh daily interactions much less large very uh 
consequential business interactions where you just have like this outcome that you want to make happen. You don't listen to what the other side wants because you're so you're to your point. So set on what you think that they want versus listening. Right, 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 right. Never be so sure what you want that you wouldn't take something back. Yeah. Okay, Chris. Well, I know we're um, bumping on time and, and so we'll have to have you back for part two. This is, thank you so much for, feel like we're just getting into it and everybody listening. Um, in, in addition to the masterclass, which I can't wait to take, it'll be my first one. Where else can people find out about you online? You know, the simplest way to access everything we have is really to subscribe to our, our weekly newsletter. It's concise and it's actionable and it's free. Now, it, it, the value isn't the fact that it's free. The value is it's concise and it's actionable. Every, mm-hmm. every article is relatively short, 500 to 1,000 words max. Actionable advice comes in on Tuesday to your inbox after you've got Monday behind. Simplest way to sign up. And again, the newsletter is a gateway to everything. Send a text message, text the sign up function. The number you text to is 33777. The message you send to 33777. The message you send is black swan method, three words, space between each word, not cap Shoot that text out. You get a text back asking for your email address. And it is the gateway. It'll, when you when you read a piece, it'll take you to the website, blackswanltd.com. Wherever you are in your negotiation journey, we can help you advance. That is phenomenal. And my analytical brain is going through everything that you just mentioned of uh, whether it's texting to make it simple, the gateway to everything. I'm getting too cerebral on on uh, just knowing so much about you, how intentional everything you just said, and also how it's set up for texting and simplicity, the gateway to everything, 500, 1,000 words. You know that people are inundated with too many emails and too much right. information, uh, but it's also, uh, and also even down to Tuesday because Mondays are so busy. It's so, that is brilliant. Um, how you do anything is how you do everything. All right. Well, Chris, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thank you for the insight uh, and, and wisdom you shared. James, my pleasure.